This is Season 3, Episode 5 of the Language Mastery Show with Nick Godwin. Here's a little sample of what's coming up. The most important thing is get started. Well, that's uh, if you feel confident about speaking, then get on italki or something and get a tutor. If you don't feel confident about it, grab a Genki book and go through that. If you're interested in kanji, start there. I, I don't think where you start matters as much as that you start. And so, yeah, just getting out there and doing it and... Little and often will uh, beat a lot and seldom any day of the week. Welcome back to the Language Mastery Show. This is your host, John Fotheringham. In today's episode, I chat with Nick Godwin, a polyglot English language coach and course creator, originally from the UK, but now living in Tokyo, Japan with his wife, where he helps higher level Japanese learners of English learn to break through the plateaus by focusing on functional conversation and listening skills. And he himself has learned quite a bit of Japanese, and he shares his journey, how he learned, some of the pitfalls to avoid, and the role of communication in mastering the language. All right, here's Nick. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Good morning. How are you? Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, whatever. I was, was going to say, you're, you're in the States, I guess, are you? I am. I'm up in the uh, northwest corner, up in oh, Washington okay, uh, State. Oh, okay. Washington area. Oh, yep. okay, nice. Okay, fab. And, and where in Japan are you again? Uh, in Tokyo. You're in Tokyo, right. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. right in the heart of Corona County, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't heard that. That's a good one. No, I just made it up right there. So yeah, nice it's, one. Not, it's not the new thing that's being called in uh, in Japan or anything. So. You should trademark that. There, there's a blog. Yeah. yeah. There you go. There's a blog post right now. So right, uh, yeah. okay, that's what I'm <laughs> Yeah. Well, I've been a... I've been a, a a uh, big time fan of your uh, of your work for a while. So, well, thank you. Yeah, it's uh, good to connect and to uh, get to chat. Indeed, yeah, a mm. long time coming. Well, since we've uh, since we connected on Facebook, I've noticed that you you're a fan of like the Daily Stoic and, and various things like oh, that. Yeah. So, like, oh yeah, we've we've definitely got things to talk about. I don't yeah, know how indeed. much. We- uh, language podcast but yeah no it, th- I, I always joke that i really should call my podcast the tangent show because yes <laughs> we talk about languages but i i like for conversations to not be constrained to only languages i mean it's interesting because i, I think a lot of people maybe have a view of any discipline that people who who follow discipline in our case linguists are so wholly focused on just that that they wake up in the morning and it's about language and everything in their life is always about language and mm-hmm. you know and, and a lot of the reasons people kind of level at not learning a language is like oh i don't have the time you know you commit so many hours a day to it or whatever and right so yeah we do other things as well and yeah you know you have to kind of make that priority for it so Indeed. i think that's that's equally valuable I think it's healthy. They, you know, different fields cross pollinate one another. I mean, one of my favorite things to do is find elements of other disciplines and then apply it in languages or linguistics or vice versa. Um, you know, between finance and languages or philosophy and languages or nutrition and languages. And th- there's just so many universal principles that apply in almost every domain. Uh, yeah, I completely agree with that. I think so. For me, you know, as I've as I've started writing on the site, you know, a lot of philosophy I think that applies in your general life comes across in the way you approach language learning for sure. Right. And you know, I, I mean, I I kind of as you mentioned about the tangent show, I guess as we'll call it going forward. I um, as I was putting together the blog, I was like, well, one, I didn't know if I had enough to say about learning languages because I think languages can be 
really, really complicated and really detailed or inherently simple and just get on and do it. And, you right. know, you can, you can kind of talk about that. And it was, I didn't want to kind of push myself into a corner and say, right, I'm going to get a six lunch down and go, I don't really have anything else to say about that topic. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I tried to kind of keep it broad and I could have just as easily put it under my name and, and just had it as like nickgodwin.com or something like that. But I thought I'd... right for a pseudonym to begin with and we'll figure it from there. <laughs> yeah. That's always a tricky business figuring out niche. And I mean, I know our mutual friend, Ollie, that's kind mm-hmm. of one of his biggest uh, favorite soapbox topics is, is people having too broad of a niche, especially for, in the language learning blogosphere. And I, I've certainly struggled with that and still do. And I begrudgingly have finally ratcheted down to mostly just focusing on Japanese as my sort of my brand. And then I, which I, I say that one side of my mouth, the other side of my mouth, I literally putting the final touches on my master Mandarin update, which, <laughs> but anyway, uh, I'm going to say that actually, because I noticed um, on your Facebook this, uh, of this past couple of weeks that you were relaunching your master Mandarin course. And I've yeah. read your Japanese fantastic work, by the Thank way, and, uh, that shows, I think a lot of overlaps in our thinking, you know, you put a lot of focus into what's the goal, what's your objective, why are you doing this, and what's the methodology, and then the actual tool is kind of the, the final component. Right, right? right. And it's the cherry on the top, but you gotta you have to have your psychology, you know, buttoned down first. And I, I it's funny, I've gotten into some debates about this with people that, um, you know, they, they tend to look at psychology or mindset as being a nice-to-have that you put on top of those other things, but I, I disagree. I think that's the foundation and if you don't have a strong enough why, if you're not, you know, if learning a language is a nice to have, a cool to have, but it's not something you need, then as soon as things get hard or boring or difficult, you're going to quit. And so mm-hmm. I, I really do. I think it's foundational. But um, yeah, I, I tend to straddle both camps, I think, um, mm. because I, I, I think that we often treat language learning like it's one thing, but mm. I, but I feel like you know, there, there are completely different avenues of language learning. For some people, it means they're taking a weekend to Paris and they just need enough French to go water sure. food and things like that. Sure. For that person, do they need a deep why? Or I guess their why is already clear because they've got that trip upcoming. But yeah. it's, I think, and I'm guilty of doing this as, as much as anyone, and then suddenly you get into this point of self-examining to a fault, right? And sure. you're like, yeah, okay, well, this is my learning style. So... I'm going to develop my perfect immersive environment based around all of this stuff I know about myself when actually the crux of it is, no, you're going on holiday in like two weeks. So sure. that's why you're doing it. Just get on with it. Right, <laughs> so, right. So there can definitely be some over analysis in some cases, but I think if you're, what you're talking about becomes especially important if you're in it for the long haul. You know, if right. you have to sustain motivation over a period of two, five, ten years, or maybe a lifetime, yeah, and you're going to naturally hit plateaus and mm-hmm. motivational bumps and cross-purpose priorities and all these different things. And the thing that's going to push you through is having that self-knowledge of, no, there is a fundamental reason I'm doing this, and there's a reason I'm using the tools I'm using and, and what have you. Right. And it's it's establishing, I guess, which camp you're in at any given point in time. Yeah, yeah, and you're you're quite right that not everybody needs that latter long-term focus and discipline. And I guess I take it for granted in in what I talk about and how I write about it because that is who I'm focusing on. That I mean, 
with the name, you know, language mastery or Japanese, you know, master Japanese, the, that word mastery, even though a lot of people misassume that I mean perfection, which is definitely mm. not the case. Um, but yes, there is, there's definitely a longitudinal component to this. That's not a, you know, it's not a marketing message of learn, learn Japanese in five minutes a day and, you know, be able to order sushi in Tokyo on your next trip. It's like, yeah, that's part of it. But um, there's enough of that already out there. So I, I don't feel like I need to add anything to that kind of uh, superficial. And I say superficial, I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. I mean, in a, you, you are, you want to go to Japan or wherever and you want to just snorkel. That's fine. Mm. Snorkeling is great. Snorkeling is fun. What I want to do is give people scuba gear. So if you want to go under and you want to see the the iceberg that is submerged below the sort of linguistic surface of the water, um, that's what I want to empower people to do. So, but enough about me. This is more about you today. So so let's get into it. Um, usually, what I like to do first with my guests is to go into what I call their origin story. So if this were a manga version of Nick Godwin's life, uh, you know, what would be, what's the spider that bit you or, or, you know, <laughs> what tragedy happened in your life that, that spurred you on to learn languages or, or did it just kind of develop slowly over time? Is there not any one sort of moment? Just kind of run me through how, how you got into languages in general and then specifically with Japanese. Yeah. Well, it becomes a really, um, interesting thing because you, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and you can look back and suddenly yeah. go, Oh yeah. No, that, There's the narrative fallacy, as it's called, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there, there are two kind of, I suppose, seminal moments that, that spring to mind. One that was positive and told me that I was a perfect language learner and this was my natural path. And one that brought all of that reality crashing down around me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the first one was, um, so I, I don't come from a, a language learning family at all, uh, with the exception of, um, of my aunt who... I think spent six months living in Paris and Morocco or something like that and, and speaking a bit of French. And other than that, I don't think anyone in my family has this language gene or obsession, whichever way we want to look at it. Right. Um, but I remember, I, I, I can't remember the exact age, I was about seven or eight years old, and that same aunt, we were out taking a walk and she pointed at a fish and she taught me the word poisson, uh, the French word for fish. Mm-hmm. And that was the that's the first conscious memory I can think of where I'd engaged with a foreign language in any way at all. Um, the town that I'm from is, or at least at that time, was not particularly multicultural and not particularly diverse. And so I didn't think I really had any idea of the world at mm-hmm. all until maybe that point. And where Despite are you from originally? So I'm from a town called Plymouth. It's uh, deep in the southwest, and it's about a two-hour drive to get anywhere, which compared to America sounds pathetic, but in, in quaint old Britain is uh, a yeah, tiny yeah. point. Yeah, exactly. And um, I, I remember, like, yeah, my, my family being a couple of hours away and saying to them that I went to Swindon, which is the town that my aunt was from, and all the people in school went, you went to Sweden? Because <laughs> it was just incomprehensible yeah. that you were go to a different place that wasn't a foreign country, I suppose. Um, so that kind of started this obsession with what what I basically did was the school approach. You know, I, I went in, I started studying French in school, and that's very vocabulary heavy mm-hmm. at the beginning. And I was perfect at it. You know, I had a decent memory and I could, I was interested, which I think is a core component of memory. Right. And so, you know, I was getting 100% on all of my tests and things like that. I was 
a natural linguistic genius, obviously, and that was uh, that was to be my fate. <laughs> so I decided, and um, then the the second part, the the spider bite, if you will. Um, my second or third year of school, we took a trip to Paris and uh, went to a very fancy restaurant, Le McDonald. And um, <laughs> I've heard of that. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And and so I opened my mouth to my expected perfect French to come flowing out, and what came out was a bumbling mess of words and uh, the result was me basically being shamed and laughed at by the uh, the counter staff and right. how much of that is traumatic interpretation and how much it really happened i'm not quite sure but um yeah long story short i kind of came back and went oh well how did i get perfect scores in school right but in practice uh, you know that resulted in nothing and i think that's the pain point that a lot of language learners really come to you know you hear things like oh well i tried to speak the language but they replied in english and i experienced that or right. you know i've studied so much vocabulary but i forget it all in that moment yeah. you know i've experienced that and or i recognize it on paper but i can't understand it when spoken to me right well it, it yeah it kind of created in my brain this split purpose of well why was i studying all this in school if actually isn't the goal of a language to speak it. And I couldn't do that. And that kind of sent me into a, sent my adolescent brain into kind of a mental spiral of like, well, hang on, what am I doing in school then? Yeah. What's and, the point? Uh, yeah. Well, it wasn't until a few years after that, I, I started studying Italian. So I, I did French and Spanish in school. And then um, actually it was my mother that introduced me to Italian. She was really interested and wanted to study together. So we started doing that. And my brother had done some newfangled online research and uh, told me about a course by Michel Thomas. I don't mm -hmm. know how familiar you are with his yep. methodology. Yep. And that introduced me to a grammar-based method and a method that's so much more focused on being able to manipulate the language rather than school grammar of tables and charts and conjugation right. and all those things. So I don't know if that was just a natural fit for me or if – um, I just kind of went, yeah, okay, this makes more sense because of that trauma. <laughs> I don't know. But, <laughs> I think um, also for the sake yeah. of listeners, we should point out if, if they're not familiar with Michelle Thomas's method, it's an audio-based method too. So I think that's a maybe an important distinction here between the sort of vocabulary and memorization textbook mm -hmm. probably approach that most people would use in a traditional academic setting. It's It's much more focused on listening, speaking, listening, speaking, um, it, yeah, yeah it, I mean, it is. Well, the, the thing I really liked about it is within five minutes, you are quote unquote thinking in the language, right? Right. right. It's, I, I have lots of questions and issues about this concept of thinking in a foreign language because sure. I, I think there's, there's a lot of neuro linguistic issues that we can talk about there. But, well, for one, we don't actually think in language, but that's a whole yeah, other, quite, <laughs> technically uh, speaking, yes. Yeah, it's, yeah. um, but, but it's one of those things where I felt they were posing a sentence and I wasn't repeating a sentence. Instead, I was actually constructing something. Right. right? Yeah. They ask you to, you know, how would you say X? And then you actually try to figure it out. Yeah. yeah. It, exactly. And, and there are, you know, Michelle Thomas isn't the only one. Pimzo does a, a mm -hmm. variation of that. And mm -hmm. there are countless kind of apps and things that, that play on that same thing. But for me, this was a really novel approach because I felt it built confidence more than anything else. You know, I've, I've heard criticisms about the Michelle Thomas method where it's not particularly vocabulary heavy and, you know, 
they, as many courses do, they give you aspirations of fluency by the end of it, and that's maybe an unrealistic goal. Right, right. But what it definitely did do is it imbued me with a level of confidence that I could travel and functionally use a language. Right. You know, I could understand how to manipulate the grammar, and that meant I could make myself understood. And you're not uh, trying to move your lips for the first time in a French McDonald's. You're doing it from the safety and comfort of home. So when you do go to that French McDonald's, you know, you might not know every word to say, but at least you have a little practice already, you know, under your belt of literally moving your mouth. Yeah. And I mean, another thing is, you know, Michel Thomas is not a native Italian speaker. And I think this, this causes a common problem where people focus right from the get go on, well, is it perfect pronunciation? Is it this, is it all of that? And it's like, for me, you know, I know, I know you've had um, Gabriel Weiner on, mm-hmm. who obviously advocates this pronunciation first method. Mm-hmm. For me, I, I can completely see the value in that. Again, if you've already decided this is a language you're going to be with for the next 10 years. Right. But for me, it was like, well, I don't know. I've never been to Italy before. I've never experienced this. Let's go and try it out. And I think that became a really positive thing that's influenced a lot of my language learning because... I went and had a weekend in Rome and it was a successful language weekend in the sense that I ordered food and I got around and all of this was on probably fewer than six hours of Michel Thomas courses. Beginner courses, eight hours. I don't think I'd finished that at the time and compared to, you know, three years of school French mm-hmm. and it's the, the ratio of time spent versus practical result was, so much more tipped in my favor than I was, I was convinced. And, um, you know, as I said, it, it, there is, it's not perfect. There are definitely issues. One thing I've learned about myself from them is I like to see how a word is spelt because it helps me to remember it much easier. Yeah. Um, it's more, you have more information to attach it to. Yeah. Sure. Right. So, and obviously that comes in even more helpfully when, when we get into like kanji and Japanese and, and right. things like that. But it's, it just gave me an early feeling of success. And I think that's maybe the most important point about it is you come away from the course going, Oh, I can do something. Mm-hmm. Not I can repeat what they wrote, but I can actually functionally do something. And so, yeah, I, I think that for me was the thing that set me off on that course to come, to come on to Japanese. So I did French, Spanish, Italian through there. And then, um, actually, my first interaction with Japanese was when I was 15. My French teacher at school had a Japanese pen friend, if you remember those, um, mm-hmm. who came over for like six weeks and taught some like introduction to Japanese language and culture classes after school. And I remember I bought a Berlitz cassette course, again, mm-hmm. dating myself very badly. <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> um, and you know, and you just look at it and they had, they had it obviously all in, in Japanese script, but that was useless to me at the time. And so just reading the, the Romaji, the Romanized text, it just seemed like one long word. It was something like, no shushin desu ka? and I'm like, that's a word? Right. <laughs> you know, and now obviously with much more experience, you know kind of how that's broken up and you go, oh, okay, that makes more sense. But the intimidation factor kind of went up to a million kind of instantly when I looked at it. And a quick tangent there that I think for those that are not familiar with Japanese specifically, you know, in the written version of Japanese, there are no spaces between words. And so to your point of not being able to even hear the spaces, I think you're kind of, 
you have two strikes there if you're familiar with like a romance language where in the written for- format there's spaces between words and how it's pronounced this is maybe more debatable but in a lot of languages you can there's a little bit maybe more of a gap between specific words especially certain dialects now my own american dialect of english we're notorious for not having such spaces we blend everything together uh pretty pretty badly uh but anyway i just i think that's a, maybe a an interesting tangent we can come back to later perhaps yeah well i mean i because I, well i specifically remember asking that question when i first came to japan i asked there was someone in um in the training group i was in as an english teacher who spoke very fluent japanese and i said to him i was like how do you know where one word starts and another word ends and obviously that's one of the key points about the usage of kanji is it helps to kind of delineate those things and right a lot of it is just you get used to it and, and all yeah. those other points but you know, when you first look at it, it's like, oh, here is just a block of text. Yeah. And, you know, they say that's the principle of bad writing, even in English, right? It's have this big chunk of text. But then if you imagine that with zero spaces in it, you're like, well, that's intimidating to look at. Yeah. You know, what I think is ironic, though, is once you get used to reading kanji-laden text, is then when you go back and try to read something that's in only kana, which is the, you know, the syllabary, there's two mm-hmm. of them in Japanese for those that are not familiar. Um it's actually really hard, which mm. is kind of a little bit ironic or counterintuitive. But trying to read kids' books, for example, I find to be really tough. I'd much rather just see the kanji because that's what my brain is used to parsing out. Oh. Anyway. It's it's a really strange thing. Actually, um, again, we'll probably come on to this a bit later on. But when I was working on the Japanese Uncovered course with, uh, with our friend Dolly, um, we had to make a conscious decision because – we couldn't throw learners into the deep end of kanji straight away. Right. We actually put spacing in between the mm-hmm. hiragana just so that it didn't look like this. Oh, this is a sentence, but it's one yeah. hulking word, effectively. And yeah. so it's a it's a set of crutches that I think mm-hmm. can be really helpful for new learners. Definitely, yeah. Definitely, definitely. And you do find that comes up quite a lot in beginner texts. So I don't want to put any listener off by going yeah okay you're just gonna have to figure that out later but mm-hmm. yeah you you will try to find those steps as you as you kind of right get into the language more yeah, like link for example as well l-a-n-g-q they they do that as well they have a setting where you can turn on or off spaces between um words and, and characters so yeah. yeah so okay so this uh your french teacher's pen pal <laughs> yes this is quite this is like a six degrees of separation yeah, exactly, so yeah. okay so they came to visit uh, and then that sort of exposed you for the first time to, was it the language, to the people, to the culture, all the above? Um, yeah, well, I mean, obviously this was an elective thing. You know, it was, mm-hmm. it was held after school. So I already had some understanding of Japan and some idea that it was cool and it was far away and it was mm-hmm. really different. And I think a lot of that probably came from, you know, martial arts movies and things that my brother introduced me to. and. Sure. and as a kid, I, I don't think I really separated kung fu from karate or whatever. And, you know, a lot of Western movies don't do that anyway. <laughs> so yeah. it's kind of all bundled together under this, this you know, chop socky kind of idea. And But I, I think that had given me an idea of what Japan was. And both rightly or wrongly, that, that made me more curious about it. So when mm. this opportunity came up, I kind of jumped in with both feet and found it really interesting but compared to all of the language experiences i'd had prior to that it seemed like a you know an unscalable wall it was mm. like how where do you even start but 
looking back on it, one, probably my French teacher's pen friend wasn't a language teacher to begin with. And two, it wasn't designed to be a course. It was, hey, this is a little bit about Japanese. And then mm. I'd gone from that to a Berlitz travel pack or something like that, which was like, can you tell me where the restaurant is or something? <laughs> like, You know, there, there was no kind of structural step up there. I'd gone from pieces of, you know, basic greetings and stuff like that right through to, well, here's fully formed language. You should know how to use this. Yeah, it's a big jump. Okay, so then where did you connect the dots for us between this first exposure there and then today of living in Japan, you know, not only speaking Japanese, but literally helping develop courses uh, on learning Japanese. So what's that evolution look like? Well, yeah, it's it's a few different things. So um, my various language experiences successful, unsuccessful, all of the above, led me on to, uh, I studied business and psychology at university. And for the psychology part of it, I had to do a a dissertation or thesis on um, a research project, anything that I wanted. And so I'd been studying a lot about learning and memory. So I decided to focus in on the very arrogant title, I guess, what's the fastest and most effective way to learn a foreign language. You know, thinking I can, you know, nobody's got this answer, but I can, I can knock yeah. this out of the park in six months. I've got that. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, the, oh, the, the, the lovable <laughs> male hubris of, of our twenties. Yes. Yeah. I'd love to say it was restricted to my twenties, but um, I was, I was we'll, trying we'll, to be nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, for now we'll say it is, John. Yeah, I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> so Cause now we're hubris free. You know, we're, our, yeah, our, our egos exactly. have completely dissolved that. away. <laughs> We're just floating <laughs> yeah. balls of, of, of enlightened consciousness. Yes. Yeah, that, that's, that's it. it. Yeah, Done. absolutely. Next problem. So, yeah, I, so I um, I started looking into different things. Obviously, I looked at uh, Michelle Thomas, and that led me on to the Pinsler approach. And, you know, I compared it with Rosetta Stone and all these different things that were prevalent at the time, including classroom learning. Mm-hmm. But the one and thing I did... the time frame I, for this? So this was 2005, 2006, okay. I guess. I graduated in 2006, so yeah, that, that would have been when I, when I handled it. Um, and the one glaring thing that came up from this research project was the assumed idea that the best way to learn a foreign language is to live in the country and mm-hmm. speak it every day. And I was like, well, I've never done that. So I had kind of decided upon graduating that I'd go away for a year and do that as something as an experiment, part, you know, travel, part cultural immersion part, whatever, you know. And, sure. and um, so I was I was kind of torn where to go. Europe seemed like it was going to be too close culturally, linguistically, and there are probably lots of um, misunderstood points about that as well. But uh, so I basically, I decided on Asia and I was torn between Korea, China, and Japan. And so ultimately it was having at least an intro and some kind of touch points with Japanese that, that led me there and uh yeah one year quickly became three um long story short i then got married well long story long i guess as it is <laughs> um, i then got married my wife and i moved to the uk for five years and then we moved back to japan and that's why i'm here um but obviously language learning was one of the primary goals so i i kind of threw myself into it when i got here and in about two and a half years i guess two and a half three years i i got from effectively zero to 
uh, I passed the NQ, the uh, JLPT. Yeah. Uh, second level. That's nothing to sneeze at. Which is, yeah, uh, which is nothing to sneeze at. And I think I definitely did things that were a bit irregular and geeky. But um, it's, uh, yeah, that that kind of gave me this, again, faux idea of mastery because I was like, yeah, yeah, I, I speak Japanese. That's fine. And, you know, there's there's no defined point as to when you can confidently say, yeah, I speak Japanese, you know? I'm, right. Right. I, I felt when I'd hit that quote unquote fluent marker after a year and a half or something like that, I'm like, well, I don't seem to have many problems anymore. But then if you look for them, you can always find a new problem to sure. solve. Us. <laughs> yeah. I mean, th- I mean, I'm certainly not the only one to ever talk about this in this world, but how one defines fluency and how, how one sets up, back to the earlier part of our conversation about goals and your why. Um, I think, it, I think that it really is important going in to pre decide what your milestones are going to be um, because there is no finish line. I mean, we're still mm-hmm. learning English mm-hmm. as native speakers, right? I, I, every day I learn usually one or two new words, depending on the kind of stuff I'm reading. Um, and I think, uh, without some kind of constraint, I think it gets real overwhelming real fast. Mm -hmm. And so even though most of my listeners know this, I'm not a huge fan of standardized testing uh, in general, but I do think for the sake of goals and motivation, it can be really powerful to say, okay, by next year, I'm going to sit for, you know, NEQ for the second, you know, second from highest level of of the JLPT or, or whatever, N3 or whatever your goal is, or I'm going to do the CFR, CFER and, you know, B2, whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I think that can help provide some specificity and clarity um, to constrain things down. But to your point, understand that just because you get to that level doesn't mean you are quote unquote fluent. And and that's, I, I think that's always, often the misunderstanding. And, um, you know, to your point, it's like if you hear someone speaking a foreign language that you don't speak, you have no way to gauge that level of fluency, Right. That could be all ums, as and likes, or whatever. And right. you go, oh wow, you 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 just it rolls off your tongue. It's yeah. so fluent. You're like, uh, yeah, okay, sure. let's let's go with that. And you know, it takes it takes a a more humble man than me, I guess, to then go, no, no, actually, I'm really not very good at all. <laughs> I go, yeah, yeah, if that's what you think, sure, okay. Um, but I think I completely agree with you. I think especially in the, the early days, standardized tests can give you a, a good kind of judge of, yeah, I'm moving in the right direction. What was difficult for me last year is now easy for me. And I can, you know, I can catch what should in theory be the same thing every year. You know, if you do, if you fail N3 one year and then you take it the next year and you go, oh, right, I understood everything. That's some something akin to a measurable level of progress, but it's yeah it's in no way a substitute for actual language ability it's right. uh, and that those levels become different gradations as you get further along so for example I yeah it's logarithmic in many ways yeah. I, I think especially with the JLPT yeah. I mean the gap between n2 and n1 is is massive yeah. yeah well but I mean like so I've I've done some study for n1 I, I took it once and didn't pass it and then the thing a thing happened where um I had a friend who was um who was a researcher at Tonai, he's now in the UK. 
um, at Cambridge. And he and I have been linguistic rivals. We were in the same <laughs> training group when we came out here. He was already a, a couple of levels ahead of me in terms yeah. of Japanese. So he was my yardstick that I was chasing, I guess. Uh-huh. And, uh, and you know, he unfortunately for me, he is also an avid language learner. So every time I get closer to him, he pulls away further. And so... And then he he went off and did a PhD in Japanese history and language, and now is reading like ancient Japanese scrolls and all these things. So um, <laughs> we've we've definitely gone off on different paths, which yeah. is a different part that comes in with with high level language learning is what you want to learn. Obviously, guides your level of mastery, I suppose. And what and, you master, because uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, great, you're, you're reading these ancient texts, but if you're not interested in literature and just want to use the language day to day, or you want to do business in Japan, or you're married to a Japanese person, like that stuff is more or less irrelevant <laughs> and vice versa. Right. Well, yeah, hundred percent. And you know, he has to go off and give all these seminars and talks and things like that using, you know, really like he does some research into like tin mines in Japan and things like that and gold mines and all these things. It's like, yeah. you know, he has to know all these like really niche vocabulary. I'm like, I've got no use for that word at all. Right. But, um, but a thing that uh, occurred to me was, so I took the JLPT M1, when was it, maybe two years ago, and I, I failed it quite badly because there's a, you get, and maybe this is just an excuse, I'm not sure, but you get to this awkward point where they almost intentionally put something in where it's like, these are two fine points of grammar, and one right. of them's one of them And so it's so easy to make a misstep when you're at that level. And then my friend he decided he was going to take it i think he applied for it on the application deadline did something like three or four weeks of reading just go yeah okay i see what the grammar is went in and got 80 percent on it straight away right and that would be easy to ascribe that to oh yeah he's a natural language talent but his in honesty his true his level of language is above mine and so he is at the m1 level he is at the level where he can walk in and that test is not something he has to consider preparing for. And I, I think this is where one of the problems comes in, especially in Japan, or I'm sure you've probably seen it in uh, in China or in Taiwan as well. Um, the test ends up becoming the goal right. rather than the language. And, right. and we have lots of students here who are like, okay, I really want to get 800 in TOEIC. And you're like, right. okay, but what do you want to do with the language? Like, no, no, I want to get 800. Yeah. And so many company promotions are kind of matched to TOEIC scores right. and, and things like that. And it's like, well, we've, we're kind of focusing on the wrong thing here. <laughs> right. Or at, le- at least you need to be honest with yourself on what you are focusing on. So in that mm-hmm. context, it's, you really don't want to get good at English. You want to make more money at work or you want to get promoted. And that's mm-hmm. fine. That's, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. Just don't lie to yourself. Don't delude mm-hmm. yourself that you are, getting an 800 on this test and be able to use the language really well. Um, And what I always advocate people is like, why not just learn the language really well? And then not only can you use it day to day, but you can also do really well on the test because like your friend, you will be at that level and you won't have to consciously study and prepare for the test so much. You can just rely on your intuitions and your, you know, the deep uh, grooves in your brain that came from having the thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of exposure to the language. So anyway, soapbox, I will get no, off no, of it. It's, but. <laughs> it's, it's a really fair soapbox because I, I do think what happens quite a lot is we conflate 
language scores with ability. And and my my friend will be the the first to tell you. So he and I are regular um, non-communication buddies, which for any which is by the way the best word in Japanese means, of all time. Yeah, yeah, it means communication through drinking. Nomu is the verb to drink, so non-communication. Yeah, and 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 the thing is that because he's studied most of his Japanese from an academic standpoint, that puts him in a at an advantage in terms of passing tests and delivering. Speeches and writing these eloquent letters or, or whatever. Meanwhile, most of my Japanese comes through functional usage and practice Colloquial. in bars, I guess. Right, right. <laughs> Not to make me sound like a raging alcoholic or something <laughs> like that, but you know, um, there's a very prevalent drinking culture in Japan, and that's where you kind of you get to communicate with people, and that's where a lot of my practice of the language came from. I, I don't respond particularly well in language classes i've had tutors from time to time but i do most of my actual studying on my own and then put that into practice in kind of those social settings and that has accelerated me faster than a lot of people who just focus on going into a class week by week and trying to build from there right yeah i I think the bottom line here is you get better at what you practice which it sounds so obvious that saying it out loud is almost silly, but I think like many things that are, that sound trite or cliche, they're actually really profound if you really think about it, or if you're really honest with yourself, because you look at what most people actually do with language learning, they don't practice things directly. They spend all the, to your point earlier about with the, the French vocabulary, you spent three years toiling away. Granted, it seemed to have come a little bit naturally to you in that way, but still it was a lot of time and effort you know, to do this thing and then to get to the end result and be so surprised and scarred by an experience when you're shocked that, wait a minute, why, how is this not leading to this? And it's like, well, of course they're not because they're completely different worlds. You know, it'd be like, and go ahead. Putting that into real context as well. It's it's not like I was trying to have like to give a speech in French or something. I was trying to order a burger. It's like, yeah, this is, you know, this should be like one day of study to be right. able to get past right. that. Point. It's, you know, three years to not even be able to order a McDonald's where you could literally just say a number, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and it could have been one day if you had got, if, if what you had been learning is, okay, if there'd been a Michelle Thomas or whatever uh, lesson on ordering burgers at McDonald's, you could have spent one day or yeah. even 10 minutes and then gone in and done it. It's just, you just had never been exposed to that. And, and this is what always breaks my heart is when learners do that exact same pattern, but then they blame themselves. They think, I'm stupid. I must yeah. not be good at languages. I must not have tried hard enough, whatever. Other people have this easy. It's not easy for me. Therefore, I'm going to quit or I'm going to throw in the towel. And I just want to I want to just give them a big hug and say, no, you're okay. You're not the problem. You've just been trying to, you know, you've been taking organic chemistry in an effort to make a sandwich when all you needed to do was just, this is one of Katsumoto's quotes. You just needed to practice making a sandwich and then you'd be good at making sandwiches. Like it's, it's really that simple. But I do, I do think that there's, there's a little bit of kind of malevolence that goes into this because I think a lot of language learning apps or courses or even classes, Mm -hmm. they give us this assumption that, what we're doing in the class is going to be equally applicable outside. And they leave out things like fear, things like nerves, things like sudden pressure, and all all of those things that come in. Well, one of the things I often see with um, students is 
obviously business English is quite a big thing in Japan and a lot of students will study a lot and then they'll have an interpreter come into their meeting with them. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, and I often say to them, like, why are you not trying to communicate in this meeting? And it's like, well, I'm not ready yet. And they just assume there is a business meeting ready level that at some point they're going to hit. Yeah. And then this perfect business meeting is going to come out. Right, right? right. You have to have a bad business meeting first. Right. And then you'll have an okay one. And then you'll have right. so-so. And then it'll be good. And eventually you'll have a decent business meeting. Yeah. Yeah. You and can't skip the suck. So we say, yeah, it, yeah, and and you know, we I think we intuitively know that because otherwise there wouldn't be any fear, right? But right. we we we're always looking for the way around it, and all of these apps, which I think serve a purpose, but they all promote the idea of well, if you just do this from the safety of your own home with no real fear, right, then you will skip that step, and it's we're going to have to encounter it sooner rather than later, and this yeah. is where um, Benny Lewis really has a, a great idea of like, I mean, I, I don't know if I 100% agree with speak from day one, but certainly it beats the alternative of study until you're ready to speak, right? Because Which it never will be, yeah. It, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, maybe speak from day three or something is, right. is more in line with what I think, but... Or maybe instead of fluent mm. in three months, it's start speaking in three months. It, whatever right. it is, it's, yeah. Mm. And I've definitely changed my position on that when I first started i mean you know i studied linguistics in college and there was a big focus on this idea of the the silent period and of uh, as crashin talks about there's a thing called the effective filter which is to your point about fear you know when you're nervous or upset it's really hard to communicate and so a lot of the focus was on uh not forcing people to speak too early because it's going to stress them out and then they're going to have a really hard time and you're going to create so-called fossilized errors where they're going to practice something wrong over and over and over and over again and that's really hard to change later so that's that's where i started but then as i got into language blogging and interviewing more and more polyglots then this idea of speaking from day one came along which at first i really resisted and then it sort of slowly slowly kind of took over my psychology and and i kind of swung that way now i'm kind of somewhere in the middle where i think as a recovering perfectionist, I'm definitely one of those people that I know I will never feel fully ready to start speaking. And so I know that if I let that sense of readiness determine when I start practicing, that's, that's, you know, fail from day. Like that's just, that's not a good way to go. But I do also think it can be unduly stressful to try to start communicating from absolute zero if you don't have to now obviously if you live in the country or you're going to be traveling then that's just that's reality you have to just roll with the punches and do your best but if you have the choice my thoughts now are why not do as much as you can to build up some vocabulary some familiarity do michelle thomas or pimsler or some of these other you know or glossica get your mouth moving get used to having to be presented with something and actively producing some of the language and then when you have a little bit of comfort, but not too much, start trying to communicate with a tutor or native speaker. So that's kind of where I'm at now. What, what are your thoughts on yeah, that? No, I, I completely agree with that. I think, I think like almost everything, the answer lies somewhere in the middle. Like yeah. you, you can go with the Benny Lewis approach and that works for him. And uh, it's better than yeah, the alternative both, to your point. Before. Well, exactly. Yeah, like yeah. I, I think the key point always comes down to goals. And this is where yeah. we started saying, you know, do you start off thinking about goals? But, if your goal is to order food in a restaurant, 
that at some point you have to practice ordering food in a restaurant. And that involves words coming out of your mouth. Right. You cannot. Or pointing at a number. Mentally, <laughs> I mean, I guess you could visualize yourself doing it and mentally yeah. go to that. I don't know to what extent that would be effective, but I would expect that when you're there and you're nervous and there's pressure and that's the first time you've ever experienced it. And you're hungry. And you're hungry. <laughs> that's going to cause a problem. Yeah. So, so for example, when I, um, after I got married and we moved back to the UK, one of the reasons was to travel around Europe. Now, most of those uh, trips, when we went to Greece or Spain or Portugal, they were never intended to be languages I was going to keep for my lifetime. So I just did some simple pre-work, which was, okay, we are going to Greece, we are going to Spain, we are going to Portugal. What are we doing during this trip? Mm-hmm. What are the likely conversations I'm going to need? And what is the vocabulary and grammar that's going to support that? Of course, there's always the possibility that something completely unexpected is going to come up, but guaranteed, you can't prepare for everything. You <laughs> yeah, can prepare right. for the expected things, though. Right. And it, it just makes a simple vacation infinitely more enjoyable. And to your point before, I think the key concept behind um, Speak From Day One is you give yourself a feeling of success early mm-hmm. and you somewhat nullify that fear because you're like oh no i've done this and it worked and it wasn't so bad nobody died to your point earlier like you take away that i'm terrible at this right you're like well i'm doing it it's day two i'm supposed to be terrible at this yeah right but i somehow got through it yeah i'm not terrible i'm just new yeah yeah you just write a different script and i think that sets you up for more motivation it gives you a better kind of self-image um, mm-hmm. as a language learner and and ultimately that seems to be to your point about interviewing all the polyglots it that seems to be a core um factor that more or less is uh, is common to anyone who speaks one language well let alone multiple languages well yeah i at this point i've done you know well over 50 interviews and that's almost i'd say down to to every man and woman is a universal thread is that confidence and that belief that they can do it. That's it. I mean, the methods are all over the map. The motivations are different. Um, people's personalities are different. I mean, yeah, but that that does seem to be the one universal factor that runs through all these different folks. And, and I think as linguists, we can often get stuck in the weeds a bit because there, mm-hmm. there's something that we always overlook, which is when you come onto your third language acquisition or fourth or fifth or however many you go to, like 200th or whatever, mm-hmm. um, you already have that belief inbuilt. Right. So then we spend a lot of time thinking about, oh, what can I do to tweak my process right. compared to last time? But I think, I think I'd think i be right in saying that all of us, when we learn our first foreign language, so second language overall, unless you were raised in a multilingual household, we didn't have a perfect method. We had a messy approach that we somehow got through. And then when you went on to the next language, you went, okay, what can I take from my past experience and apply here? Right. Yeah, and, and you, you perfect that method as you go through more. So mm-hmm. someone like a Richard Simcott or someone who speaks, a, I don't know, 26 languages, I think it is, or something like that, his 27th, 28th language, he's going to be pretty dialed into what is going to work for him, right? right? Uh, yeah. What yeah. he's looking for from material. Yep. He knows what to do. He knows how to use it. He has the discipline. He has the, the interest. Yeah, all, all those things. Um, so... Let's go back a little bit to you first getting into Japanese. So um, I want to maybe 
do a little bit of a then versus now comparison. So what was your process then of learning the language? And then what now does a typical day of language learning look like for you? Um, well, I guess, well, then I, I think I can immediately dispel the myth that you will not pick up Japanese just by being in the country. That's not going to happen. Um, so it was a lot of effort. I, you know, I, yeah. as I mentioned before, coming to Japan was the the primary reason for me to be here was to learn Japanese. And again, that uh, 20 hubris reared his ugly head and, you know, I'll master this in a year because that's yeah. what you do. Yeah. But, but again, that's the script that was sold through movies and through whatever is you see this guy go to a foreign country, then you fast forward a year and seemingly they speak perfectly eloquently with a native-like accent. Yeah. And there's no right and the training montage you have like one one yeah. high impact song <laughs> and then suddenly they're you know on the punching bag perfectly yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. it's it's it wasn't like that but in some ways it kind of was because i threw myself into grammar i'd already experienced with the michelle thomas method through italian that actually grammar works quite well for me as long as it's not in boring conjugation tables and lists i need to remember so i use i've got them just here actually i use these oh, f1 i've got the m1 here anyway um these kanzen mm-hmm. master series and um and so this complete master series uh i started off using genki which was kind of a structured textbook and introduced me to a lot of the basics but i did you know that's two textbooks which i think is supposed to be like a year of study or something like that and i finished that in about a month a month and a half because like I said, the main purpose was to be there to do that. So I was, I was going at it really hard, probably about four hours a day um, of study. And obviously I was filled with motivation because everything around me was new and I didn't understand right. any of it. Um, I would mention that prior to that, I lived in the States for six months. And while I was there, I learned Hiragana and Katakana, the two syllabary systems. Mm-hmm. And I had done the Pimsleur course. So I had some kind of foundation level um prior to getting into that and then after i finished those genki books i then went on to the the kanzen master uh, the complete mastery series and they are tied to the jlpt levels mm-hmm. and they take a very grammatical approach they're actually quite light on exercises and i don't tend to find repetitions fun for me i don't find it very useful um what i will tend to do is I'll go through maybe three or four repetitions using the set exercises. Then I'll create my own sentences and then I'll be speaking. Um, and that brings us back to our old friend, non-communication, which was my key secret, which was I, because I was working as an English teacher, which we haven't really touched on, but I was, I, I came out here to work for one of the big schools, which is how a lot of foreigners come to Japan. Yep. And so while I was there, we were instructed to only use English during the workday. So I wasn't in a native Japanese environment. Right. Like I was surrounded by Japanese all day. Yeah, it's one of the great ironies people don't realize is exactly that. Right. If you if you are going to be living in Taiwan to learn Mandarin or Japan to learn Japanese, and as many, you know, find themselves working, teaching English, that uh, unfortunately, yeah, much of your day not only will be spent teaching English, but also being encouraged to speak in English, not only with students, but the other, you know, the other English teachers want to speak English with you because it's, hey, free practice. Um, and then if you're not careful, which we haven't touched on this so much yet, but there's a big, I think, 
um, it's an all too alluring pull to be in an English only bubble with other, you know, expats and other native English speakers. Um, and I think it's healthy to have some of that. I mean, you're, you know, you're far from home. You're going through, you know, in many ways, a very difficult life transformation and situation. And, and, you know, sometimes you just want to kick your heels up and, uh, bitch and complain and, uh, you know, and just reminisce about things back home. Um, but as you and I, I mentioned before that I did some unusual things. So my first six months in Japan, I actively avoided the expat bubble. Good for you. So, That's not easy, yeah, but the yeah. only, the only other foreigner outside of coworkers that I spent any time with, with was that, um, rival that I mentioned before <laughs> who, um, he and I both play basketball. And so we used to meet up, play basketball and we would go drinking together and things like that. And, mm -hmm. um, so that always gave me kind of a view of what my goal was. Like, mm -hmm. you know, we would go there and at this point I was speaking kind of broken Japanese, but I was doing my best, which gets you probably further in Japan than most countries because the English level here is not particularly high. And so yeah. even broken Japanese people will tend to respond in Japanese. Right. Um, and so as I went through that six months, yeah, I, I basically, I was, trying to immerse myself in the culture as much as possible. I was studying every day. And so my social outlet, my bitching session, I guess, was me going to find some hapless salaryman in a bar <laughs> or whatever that I was going to practice my Japanese with. But right. the, the big difference, I think, because sometimes in Japan you'll be approached by a Japanese person who will literally say, can I practice my English with you? <laughs> and, and you can say, yes, be, my hourly rate is, uh, well, you know, 2000 yen. <laughs> as, as has happened to me a couple of times going to uh, one of the big bookstores in, um, in Tokyo, the, uh, a Japanese person will approach you and say, can I practice my English with you? And you're like, okay. And it's like, where are you from? And you say your hometown. And then he basically would have memorized the Wikipedia page essentially of your hometown. So prem, you know, impressive memory feet, not to one side. I, he came to me like, I think three times over the course of six months. The wow. first time it was novel. The second time I kind of humored him. The third time I went, you know, we've been through this before. <sighs> Memorizing the Wikipedia page about my hometown is not the same as a conversation. Yeah. So yeah. So it, I was very conscious. I think that when I went to speak to someone in a bar is this should be a real conversation. This right. isn't, hey, this is what I learned in my textbook today. I'm now going to use that. But I took very much that speak from day one approach of I'm going to consciously output and ask questions and kind of mm -hmm. get to know this person as you would a person in your native language. Right. And wherever this conversation is going to hit a roadblock, that's going to effectively be the end of my drinking session. Mm -hmm. So the incentive to stay in a bar for a long time was also tied to my ability <laughs> to continue a conversation. I yeah. So yeah. Um, and I want to underpin that too, that that focus on it just being about communication, I think is so important. And it just, it feels so much more enjoyable for both parties. Um, and I know, that anyone who's ever been abroad, especially in these kind of contexts, and you've been the recipient of somebody who wants to basically just use you as a free, you know, a kaiwa, it's, uh, yeah. it, it almost, it feels dirty. I mean, honestly, it feels like it's like linguistic prostitution or something that you're just being, you're, you're not being seen as a person. You're being yeah. seen as, you know, a, uh, 
you're you're a you're a foreign you're you're an object you're oh you are foreigner and i want to um you know use this for 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 my own purposes and it goes the other way of course too it's like you if you're wanting to learn japanese and you're not seeing them as a individual it's just oh they're a free japanese vending machine um yeah it just doesn't feel good so i i think i commend you for having that goal of like nope i'm just going to communicate as far as i can get and then when i can't anymore then you know no more no more nama nama true for me so (laughs) and and i don't want to tile the brush that all Japanese people do this wrong. And I had found this magic formula. Like in the same way, we had some students who would, they would invite you to a family barbecue, for example. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure probably a lot of that was great. I get to practice my English here, sure, but it doesn't feel like that because you're actually being invited to do something. And, you know, especially being a new foreigner in Japan, you know, I had students who say, Oh, won't you come and experience Japanese tea ceremony? Mm -hmm. And then the whole time they would explain to me what's happening in English which is great practice for their English. I can ask them questions. Right. All the while I get the value of experience in that culture as well. Yeah. And I think it's vast majority of the time in those kind of contexts, it is genuine and they, they're, I mean, they're proud of their culture and they want to share it with you. And they, they, and they want to highlight, you know, these parts of the, um, Japanese culture that they're, you know, they're, they're quite proud of and rightfully so. So, um, okay. So let's fast forward to today. So, um, whether, whether in terms of refining and maintaining Japanese or in tackling other new languages, what does a, a day of language learning look like now? So I, I've heard on your podcast, you, you kind of ask people about their, what's their kind of habit of language learning. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm potentially a little bit different in that sense that I don't have a set thing that I do every day. Instead, my core belief is that I, I connect with any languages I'm focusing on every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the fact of doing something every day beats the what you do every day. So, habit of the habit. for example, yep. sorry, habit of the habit, as yeah, exactly. Rubin calls right. it. Yeah, yeah. So, oh yeah, that's another thing we have in common. Is I, I'm also a Gretchen Rubin fan. So oh, cool. That's something else we could geek out on. Yeah, quite, by this would be a this would be a dangerous <laughs> drinking game of yeah. What, what do John and Nick <laughs> yeah. have in common? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, but um, yeah, it's so so. Basically, so what my morning routine looks like at the moment when it comes to languages is for Japanese, I do a little bit of um, kanji study. I'm using Wani Kani because I've used the Heisig method before, which was good. When I lived in Japan first, I used um, white rabbit flashcards Uh and kind of created my own flashcards because I knew that I needed the active memory of writing out and things like that. Um, it was good, but I found that the memory of them faded, especially the, the writing memory. I could still read relatively fine, but yeah, um, yeah, it, it, uh, it, it definitely had impact with that. Um, and then last year I started doing Wally Kami, which there's no kind of test out level. You have to start from the beginning. So it's been kind of an interesting review, but it kind of is the high sig method applied only to reading, I guess. And, um, and they also include pronunciations, right? Which, yeah, sorry, yeah. So, which yeah, is something that Isaac very intentionally does not do pronunciations, at least in the beginning, because you know his his philosophy, which I I personally agree with, is it's too much to try to remember. I think pronunciation, uh-huh. stroke order, meaning, you uh-huh. know, readings like all at once, it's a lot. So I I agree with I I agree with that side of it. Um, 
the problem that you get is I would assume, um, and I'm only doing kind of an N of one study here, mm-hmm. I would assume the dropout rate is significant before anybody gets to the second book, right? Because his, right. his first book, you're going to learn how to write 2,000 characters. Yeah. But functionally, like even with me living in Japan, I'm like, functionally, I can't do anything with that. I can write the character and like, so I'll see the character and I'll recognize it and I'll go, oh, okay, that's still not helped me with that vocabulary word. Because it's what, like, the attributed meaning in for the help of a no, mnemonic story or, or something like that, mm. or even if that meaning is related to its origin, that doesn't necessarily really help you in the real world. And one thing that I found with Wani Kani is they tend to introduce Kani, uh, introduce Kani, introduce Kanji first. <laughs> All the crabs you want. <laughs> All the crabs in the world. Um, they introduce uh, Kanji initially in the Onyomi, the Chinese reading. Mm-hmm. And so you are already Which is what's used in compounds for those not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so you are already gaining kind of the, the practical element of, oh, okay, I'm now kind of the Michelle Thomas method again. I'm actively reading this mm-hmm. because I'm putting new words together. And they'll introduce words without giving you the pronunciation and you'll guess the pronunciation and go, yeah, you should have already got this right. You've seen this, you've seen this, it's regular. Right. And then afterwards they'll bring in the, uh, the kunyo, meaning the, the traditional Japanese reading or the standalone reading. Um, and they'll create kind of a different mnemonic hook for each of those. So it kind of takes high sig and breaks it down another step. The, the thought that I'd had was I'm going to go through Wanikani and once I've completed that, that would be perfect for passing, say, the JLPT. Mm-hmm. But to be native-level Japanese or whatever we want to consider a level of mastery of kanji would be able to write those kind of on command as well. So my plan after that is then to go back to Heisig because I think the mnemonics about how to build the characters were really, really useful. And it did really work. It was just I don't know if learning how to write the kanji is more relevant than learning how to read it, especially in modern society where we have computers and texts right yeah that's a really interesting point and i i've been noodling on that a lot lately in fact in my last uh follow-up interview with ollie he asked me that like what what would you do differently now knowing what you know now and that was one one thing i thought about was with kanji specifically would i focus would i still do the heisig method again um kind of check that box and then go on to readings, or would I just shoot right to recognition and pronunciation? Because that's all you need to be able to type or you know text in your phone, right? You don't you don't need to write them by hand. You can just enter the the romaji and then pick the character. So, which one do you think? I I, I honestly don't know. Um, I still think because if your goal is again full mastery eventually. I think if you go about it right, you can you can ding off the Isaac thing in a matter of months if you're diligent, if you have that discipline. So so I guess that's that's it. It's if you can stick to it, to your point, if you can stick to it and just knuckle through it and get it done, I advocate might as well just get that out of the way. And because you can do that at any point, you don't even be able honestly to, to do the Isaac method, you don't even need to be able to speak anything. You could do that. Maybe you're going to start learning Japanese next year. You could do the Heisig method now. You just kind of get that out of the way. But I, I didn't follow either of these methods when I was a beginner. So to a certain extent, I've got a kind of advanced learner bias that comes into it as well. Right. Where I'm now looking back and it's like, yeah, I can remember that kanji really easily, but I've already seen it 
200 times. Exactly. Right. So I, it's really, really difficult to then say, well, if I were to start from zero with the Heisig method, I don't know how, I mean, of course, the, the idea of can I remember the structure of this character, I think that would still work. Um, one thing I realized that was a problem with my original method was as I've gone through Wani Kani, I'm like, I know that kanji, I know what it means, but I only know one reading because mm -hmm. I've forgotten the onyomi or I've forgotten the kunyomi. Mm -hmm. like whichever one I've used the most, I've remembered, and then I've forgotten another one. And so just doing something that was based on repetition seemed to work when I was first here, and that's why I kept doing it. And I got up to, you know, I did it a lot. I got up to maybe 1,500 kanji doing that. Um, but there's a, now that I've learned a lot more about learning and how you can kind of connect these things together and make that work, and the Heisig method is definitely a good example of that. Wani Kani is also a very good example, and there seem to be a lot of people in the forum who don't really speak any Japanese, and they've only learned through... Uh, Wani Kani, and mm. that does seem to give people quite a deep level of vocabulary knowledge. Again, you know, like with everything, there are faults. I don't know how much it helps you to identify nuance or even understand how to use kanji functionally in a sentence, but that's why kind of a holistic approach is, is quite important. Um, but coming back to uh, to the morning routine, the other thing that I'm doing for Japanese at the moment is, do you know Dogen? The, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm doing his phonetics course, his pitch accent course, oh, cool. moment, which is really, really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So for those that aren't familiar, uh, Japanese is a so-called pitch accent language, which it's not tonal like something like Mandarin. Um, and there aren't word stresses like in English. There's something else that's called pitch accent. So it's high, low distinctions. And so one of the best examples that always comes to mind is, you know, there are three words that are all pronounced basically the same, hashi. So in, in Romaji, it'd be H-A-S-H-I. And there are three words that mean different things based on if it's high, low, low, high, or flat, basically. So it'd be bridge, chopsticks, or an edge, right? These are all hashi. So hashi, hashi, hashi. And I know Dogen is a, he's a very popular um, YouTuber and, and a Twitter, um, I guess, star. Is that the right word? A, a, a tweeter, a, yeah, a twit, yes, so. <laughs> a tweety. Yes, so. But but I think one one of the things. So I've I've kind of checked with multiple Japanese people, and he seems to have the closest thing to a native like accent that I've seen, at least available course wise among yeah, foreigners. No, he's he's excellent. It, His Japanese is yeah, excellent. Absolutely yeah. incredible accent. So. And it's an interesting thing. So as I started doing that last year, and I've kind of done it in, in fits and starts, but um, immediately, probably in the last year, so of course there's the, uh, the the trope that, you know, in Japan you get, oh, Nihongo Jouzu this thing. Like, oh, your Japanese is really skilled. <laughs> yeah, even if you're like, you're like, Konnichiwa. Like, oh, <laughs> and then, yeah. <laughs> and then once, you, once you get past a certain level, it then moves away from your Japanese is good to how long have you been here, right? And that's kind of the the, the first goal achieved, I suppose. Yeah. And the thing that I've found since starting with, with Doga is I've had multiple, both students that I've, you know, have heard me speak Japanese before and people I've met for the first time, where either they've assumed my level of mastery over Japanese is better than it is, and I'd like to think I'm reasonably fluent anyway, um, 
or they have specifically complimented me on how much more natural I sound. And that's only, you know, I've only done maybe the first 10 lessons. He's got like 70 or 80 on there. Um, so I've, I've been finding that really valuable. And then the rest of my Japanese study has just been native input. So reading books or YouTube videos or anything mm -hmm. like that. For Italian, which I'm studying at the moment, which is a considerably lower level, um, I'm using several apps. I, I think apps are really good for one, just keeping a consistent habit going, mm -hmm. and two, for auxiliary things like vocabulary, like getting used to sentence structure, especially if you think of something like a Duolingo, right. where you're like, okay, I can see it, but you're not going to repeat that. It's much more passive learning. Yeah. Um, and then I have a couple of sessions a week with a tutor and, and things like that. So and what do you use no for tutors? Kind of, like italki or what's your... Yeah, I'm using italki. Yeah. And well, when I have a tutor, I my big insistence is that I don't want to be taught. Right. Maybe because teachers make the worst students and maybe, well, maybe it's just I, I know the way I like to learn. But the way I consider it is the learning phase is in between the sessions. And then the session is my practice phase, especially because I don't live in Italy, so I don't have access to that uh, level of practice and repetition that I did when I first moved to Japan. Yeah, and I think this is another really important point to underscore. If those listening do want to start working with a tutor on Italki, or, or there's dozens of these kind of sites now, um, be very clear up front with that tutor of what you want and what you expect and how you would prefer to have the sessions go because a lot of them, they're just going to go with the default assumption that, Oh, this is just a traditional language class. It's just one-on-one -on -one via Skype or whatever, um, which is fine. You can do that. But I think to your point, you're paying for this. And so you should get out of it what you want out of it. And I think you're going to get the most benefit exactly as you said, practicing actually communicating you know asking questions trying to use the words that you've been learning in between the sessions but them oh god the other day i went through a i was just testing out a new tutoring site and so i just tr i tried a random mandarin mm -hmm. teacher and he literally was using a text he was screen sharing a textbook through yeah, through the and thing it happens and, and i think yeah. I think the reason that happens is one teachers want to teach and it's, I guess it's the demonstrable value that they can give, right? Yeah. It's if, if we just have a conversation as a learner, we say, okay, this is really good. Actually, I can feel myself, especially a more self-aware learner after you've been through this process a couple of times, you say, Oh, I can really feel that the language is coming a bit more naturally and more comfortable, but you have some where to place that on a curve, right? right. Whereas, I think for the average learner, they're like, okay, I'm paying you money, so you are giving me language. Yeah, you're downloading so is, it in my brain like the Matrix. And <laughs> well, well, not just that, but like if I were to sum up this language session, what is the thing we practiced in this language session? Right. And you go, oh, okay, today we practiced... X grammar point. Um, yeah, whatever the grammar point is. And yeah. so that becomes really clear for the teacher. Okay, before this lesson, you couldn't do this, and after this lesson, you can. I added that value to you. And so it, it kind of goes back to what you said before about goals. We want to really guide our teachers, our tools, our resources based on what our purpose is. And if your purpose is, I want to get the repetition so that when I go on holiday, I can order that burger, mm -hmm. then you need to tell your tutor that so that they can support you in the best possible way. Right. right. And, and even if you do decide to do it, you know, maybe you decide to go through a textbook, for example, together with a tutor, like maybe you use Genki and you go through Genki together. That's fine. But 
again, to your point, then I would say the best use of your time and money is study the lessons between the sessions and then ask questions or try to use the vocabulary, the grammar points in actual conversation during your tutoring session. Yes. It shouldn't be going through the actual exercises in the book during the, uh, you know, the coaching session. It's just, I, I don't know. I just think it's a waste of your money and time. Well, if we, if we take the proxy of me going to the bar with the salary man, if I went there and say, okay, so today I practiced a grammar point, right. let me now use that with you seven times. Yeah, right. That's not a conversation, no. right? Whereas if if we build this relationship over the course of an hour or a couple of hours, and then I see that opportunity, I'm like, ah, I learned this. This is a practical case where I can bring that out in conversation. Mm-hmm. And that seems to... And you can probably speak much more to the, the linguistic benefit of that. That seems to embed that grammar point much more. You know, obviously, we, we know the opposite with the mistake. If you make a mistake, you never forget that point, right? Mm-hmm. My 14-year-old, you know, hamburger trauma is still with me to this day. <laughs> yeah. but, but, you know, if you do something right, especially if you just studied it and then you apply it naturally, correctly, there is definitely kind of an indelible mark that's left as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, there's an emotional impact. And I, I think that th- this speaks to how our memory works. And a lot of people, they they have this false belief that, oh, I have a bad memory because I've stared at this word. Or I've tried to memorize this grammar point and it's just not sticking. And what I always say to them is like, well, you're not, you're not in, there's no emotional connection to it right now. It's just a word on a page. You have to create some kind of connection. And to what you were just saying, I mean, when you do make a mistake or you're embarrassed or there's something that that's the emotion. It's not necessarily a savory emotion, but it's emotion nonetheless. And that, that tends to really encode stuff because that's our brains don't care what we think is important. Our brains decide what they think is important for, you know, from a evolutionary point of view, it's like, what's going to kill us. What's going to feed us, you know, what's going to let us pass on our genes. Like those are, you can fill in the blanks here, right? Those, those are the things that our brains will decide <laughs> this actually matters or not. They don't care what level you want to get in the JLPT. <laughs> well, and, and, and to your point, like, so that embarrassment then sends a signal to your brain, this hurt us, right? right. They, they don't delineate whether it was a physical pain or right. stress or, or whatever, but it was like, I made this mistake and the result was pain. Yeah. So as a result, I now need to make sure I don't make that mistake yeah, again. again. Yeah. And the, the net result of that is learning and, and correcting. Right. Do you... Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Tim Ferriss, but I assume you are. Um, yeah, I love Ferriss. <laughs> yeah, he has that great uh, bit he shared about when he did his first Japanese homestay. Yes. And the first morning there, he's like, okay, I want you to make it. Yeah, yeah. Right? Please rate me at 8 a.m. tomorrow morning. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Very close. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, so that's kind of your your – basic routine now. So just no matter what, every day you try to at least get a little bit of exposure or practice. Um, I agree with you. You know, the apps are, they're, they're a great way to at least get something in. They're not perfect, but you know, uh, another Tim Ferrisism is that the, the imperfect diet you stick to is better than the perfect diet you quit. Um, that's definitely a hundred percent agreement there. Um, what are some things that you see? We talked about this a little bit already, but what are some common mistakes or bad habits or myths that you see a lot of language learners make either in general or specifically with Japanese? Mm. Um, 
I mean, I think it, it comes to a couple of key points we've already talked about, as you said. One of them is is waiting to be ready to speak. Mm-hmm. I think that's just prevalent among all language learners. Um, the second one that definitely you, you said you were a recovering perfectionist. I think I fall into that category as well. Maybe is recovering the is too strong of a word, but... One of you recovering perfectionists. There you go, yeah. Because <laughs> um, I... I I think everyone wants their first sentence to be perfect, but accepting that you're going to be imperfect first is important, you know, and there's, there's a fine balance there. You talked about crashing before and how do you avoid turning something into a fossilized mistake? Well, that's potentially the role of a tutor. And actually this is one thing that I found particularly difficult with, um, Japanese learning as I currently sit because because my Japanese is at an advanced level and Japanese people are so conscious about not offending or you know being non-offensive mm-hmm. I am certain that I have some fossilized mistakes that slide by so I have a Japanese tutor as well and I keep having to say to her I want you to be really strict right and she right. will she will give me new vocabulary as and when it's appropriate but she almost never corrects a grammar point or corrects a mm-hmm. oh, okay you said this but i don't think that's what you meant right and so there's there's kind of a diminishing return there in with terms of, in terms of tutors and i think i have a very good one but where she will say well yeah but you speak so comfortably and fluently picking up on this one little point seems a waste of time but it's like well that's exactly what i need yeah like that's the point i'm trying to eradicate and i right. might have said that same thing a thousand times now so that might yeah. be quite a deeply embedded fossilized mistake so i think i think the other thing in terms of the common mistakes is people not taking ownership for their own learning mm-hmm. so like in that case i have to say to my tutor more strongly i want you to do the thing that you're afraid to do and like yeah. be really forceful in that right. if you're a beginner then it's what do you want to get out of this session what are you preparing for what's your goal mm-hmm. um and, and I maybe think that, not getting too much correction early on too because that this doesn't usually happen so much in, I think, in Japanese culture, to your point. There's definitely a focus on not letting either party lose face and trying to keep things cordial. But um, there are, though, teachers, I think, and tutors who will hypercorrect. And that can be too much in the beginning. When you're just trying yeah. to focus on getting just enough communication, you don't want every other word to be corrected. Or um, Yeah, it's like, well, I mean, to give a perfect example of that, like, as, a, as an English teacher... I generally have the parameter of I will, for beginners, I will correct if they use a verb incorrectly. Mm. But if they skip something like an A and the, I'm going to let that pass, right? Right, right, Because there are are points where that's going to be something in their conscious memory and they're going to have to work on it. But at the same time, I have to be, if they ask for a correction, I have to be careful not to then skip over that point because I don't want them to assume that not using it is correct. And so it's a tricky balance, both from a teacher's perspective and also a learner's. But yeah, I I think you're exactly right. You want to feel some level of success as early as possible to give you the motivation and and get you going forward. But then the higher up you go, the more kind of pedantic you want a tutor to be Mm -hmm. in terms of saying, okay, you've said this like 150 times and I've never (laughs) picked up on it, but this time we're doing it. Yeah. yeah. Today's the day. Yeah. Yeah. How do you like to be corrected then, or how do you recommend 
learners get corrected in the moment or do you want them to like send you you know when i was teaching english in taiwan for example after every session i would send them a report and i would literally write you said this arrow should be this you know what, what's your preferences there well i laughed because um my first thought was i don't know what to be corrected at yeah. all <laughs> nobody wants to be told they're wrong you right, know it's, right. whether that's the perfectionist or whether that's Again, my hubris or Our my male egos, yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. I don't want to be corrected. I want to be told I'm perfect. Right. But um, in reality, I prefer for it to be um, chunked. Again, I think it depends where you are in the language learning journey. Mm -hmm. Because if you're the beginner intermediate level, I think it can be helpful to be interrupted and corrected. Okay. But not if that's going to be detrimental to your confidence. So if you're a shy person and, you know, as a teacher, you finally coax a sentence out of someone, then you immediately interrupt and cut them off and go, ah, but you did that wrong. All right. you're doing is reinforcing that they shouldn't speak, right? Right, right. Um, but for someone like myself, I'm, it's, as you might have guessed from this, it's harder to get me to shut up than to get me to, <laughs> to speak. So, so I'm, um, I'm usually... At beginner intermediate level, I like to be interrupted and given the notes so that I can then repeat the sentence correctly. Mm -hmm. At an advanced level, so for example, with Japanese now, usually I will get my full thought out and then my tutor will just say, oh, you should have used this word. This is the word you were looking for. Because mm -hmm. I, I think to my detriment, I'm very good at finding a workaround. Right. And my tutor's really, really good at catching me on that. And she'll go, yeah, you said this and it was a little bit inelegant. You could have just said this word. I'm like, yeah. oh, okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> Which is precisely what that level is, and that you know you you're you have the fluency, which is that for the beginner intermediate learner, that's the goal first is be able to speak around things you don't know how to say, and that's a great place to be. But if you want to keep learning, then yeah, you have to start being a little bit more you know doing deliberate practice and then filling in those those Swiss cheese holes, as it were. Um, have you ever done any work with uh, recording yourself and then having? a native speaker or tutor go through with like timestamps and like pointing out pronunciation or mistakes? Um, not, not exactly to that extent. We, I have done recording. So when, when I started doing the dogging course last year, um, my tutor and I worked on a, a kind of a short article and I would record a version and then send it to her. She would send me a couple of notes, but they weren't like timestamps. It would be, especially at the beginning, it was like a general overview. Mm -hmm. Like one common thing that, foreigners do with uh particles in japanese is we tend to rise our intonation on them right and so you go watashi wa kore o right, right. Ni, or it's like, what, like it's that. one of the easiest ways to sound foreign well yeah. and, well and especially um so my when i um worked at uh the eikaiwa all of the teachers around me were female and it's a much more feminine trait of language as well right. of, of the japanese language as well so I found that I was mimicking what sounded like native-like language, but obviously it was giving me a kind of a very feminine air to it, and it was very unnatural, whereas men tend to and just drop down off of the particle a lot more, and it's trying to get those connections just right. And so as I would do recordings, my tutor would then record herself saying the same thing and send that back with the notes, and so then I would record it a second time, and that, that helped a lot, mm -hmm. for sure, but... Yeah, we, we didn't do that a huge amount, maybe just for a couple of months. But um, yeah, it was it was definitely helpful on getting kind of the broad strokes of mm -hmm. where intonation was going wrong. And I will interject here that 
for those listening that are getting to that kind of intermediate phase and their their fluency is getting really strong, when it comes to pronunciation, I do really strongly recommend that you try to imitate someone of the same gender, especially in a language like Japanese to, to Nick's point. Um, I had that, I mean, almost all of us, I think, go through the stage, especially, you know, if we're married to or dating uh, someone from that that country and we're getting almost all of our listening input from that person. It's inevitable. We're going to start imitating them. Uh, and I, I had a good Japanese friend in college, take me aside and he's, you know, put his hand around my shoulder and said, you're, you know, your Japanese is getting pretty good, but you sound like a girl. <laughs> and so, yeah, yeah. I had the exact same experience. Yeah. And, and, and with Japanese, yeah. I think it becomes even more difficult because, one, one issue that I have is if you go and look at like YouTube content, for example, I guess to a certain extent, and we never have to think about this in our native language, at some point you have to decide what kind of Japanese person you want to be, right? right. Do you want to be kind of this, this gruff, direct like kind of person or do you want to speak more eloquently or like, how, like what do you want to come across as as yeah. a person? Are you, a, are you a Watashi up, person? A boku or an I, ore. I'm generally a know. boku person. This yeah, is, these, these are the all words for I. For yeah, ore always I. seems weird to me. So yeah. so I spend obviously a lot of time with my, my wife who's Japanese and her family. She has two brothers. Um, and uh, and her brothers and her dad are all ore people, like all the time. Interesting. Like, It's kind of gruff her, sounding. Well, yeah. her, her father-in-law... Her father-in-law, my father-in-law, her father-in-law would be my father. Yeah. <laughs> my father-in-law, when he's talking to uh, her mother or her directly, then he will tend to finish sentences with "oh my," right? Mm. And it's it's kind of this colloquial expression. We we live in Stamachi, Tokyo, and mm-hmm. so it's it's kind of a really Stamachi way of talking. Yeah. And if I just copied that and went, yeah, okay, well, I know a Japanese guy who speaks like this that's not necessarily reflective of the way I want to be kind of interpreted and perceived by other people. So yeah. I think that's something also to be conscious of. And I don't think it would fly. I mean, I, I went through a phase like that when I, you know, watching a lot of anime and, uh, I, I was using ore and omai and I actually had somebody kind of offended by it. I mean, they, understandably i mean especially i think when they see a foreign person speaking they're going to assume that you speak in a you know kind of a standard hyojungo like you know uh polite you know teinego like mas des kind of level and to suddenly be you know trying to sound like a uh yakuza anime character it's not it doesn't does not endear you <laughs> to most people they might think it's funny you might get a laugh if you do it, you know, in a humorous way, but definitely, uh, yeah, not, not the way you want to talk to your, if you're going to propose to, uh, you know, your soon to be Japanese wife, uh, when you're asking her father for her father's blessing, don't, uh, yeah, do not do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. Well, just to kind of wrap up here, I know we're getting, uh, nearly an hour and a half which is not uncommon for these conversations because we always get into the weeds and have fun but uh for the sake of our dear listeners we will we'll make it easy on them and start to wrap up um so just real quick i wanted to touch a little bit on um bilingua which is your um language learning site yes what is it who is it for and then uh where can people find you if they want to learn more 
Yeah, so uh, so Bilingua is um, uh, our company, our, our teaching uh, services, which we offer to to Japanese learners. We we specialize particularly in intermediate and business learners, um, helping them to break through plateaus. We we do some test teaching and, and things like that as well, but that's kind of our, our key focus. So I don't know how many people listening out there would be Japanese or know someone Japanese, but well, there's um, reverse learning. I mean. I, I actually, I love reverse learning where you go and you, so for example, I will often go to the Duolingo um, English course for Japanese yep. speakers and oh, okay. I'll, I will read about learning English in Japanese. I find that really interesting and fascinating. Well, so. well if anybody wants to uh, to come and, and take a look at the site, uh, mm-hmm. we're, we're redeveloping um, a newfangled version of the site at the moment. Uh, the site that's live is on uh, bilingual-teaching.com, which is uh, B-Y-L-I-N-G-U-A. Uh, hyphen teaching.com and uh, and then I've just launched a personal blog as well because I'm constantly writing things in Japanese to go on that blog and so I kind of needed an English creative output yes. outlet as well um, so I've put that under uh, under the name of the minimalinguist.com um, which uh, again I guess you'll put the links and things in. indeed yeah all these are in the show notes yeah um yeah, so it, it's not just about language. It's about kind of languages, learning in general, and, and kind of some of the things we've touched on today. Mm-hmm. Um, and philosophy, then also, you know, I life thoughts and philosophy, yeah. yeah. Right. So, uh, yeah, I think we have a very kind of similar bent in that way. So yeah. I was actually a philosophy minor in college. So we have, oh, okay, yeah. nice, nice. Yeah, I well, I had um, I had philosophy class at 4 a.m. this morning. So Oh, goodness. Um, yeah, it's, it starts early because it's in, it's in the U.K., but... Unfortunately, they don't have a school in Tokyo. So, very cool, awesome. Well, uh, any final words of encouragement? If somebody, let's say, they're just starting a language, maybe they they they're getting into Japanese and they see this, you know, as you said earlier, this unscalable wall in front of them. Um, what would you say to this learner? I mean, I think again, as you said, cliche and trite has profound meaning. Just get started somewhere is is important. Mm-hmm. I think. What we've touched on a couple of times, you can go into detail and think about what is your goal for the language and then start to build your plan based around that. If you're an experienced learner, that's probably a wise move. But if this is your first foreign language, I think the most important thing is get started. Well, that's uh, if you feel confident about speaking, then get on italki or something and get a tutor. If you don't feel confident about it, grab a Genki book and go through that. If you're interested in kanji, start there. I don't think where you start matters as much as that you start. And okay. so, yeah, just getting out there and doing it and little and often will uh, beat a lot and seldom any day of the week. Yeah. So uh, yeah. I definitely, that's it. 100%. Yep. Lovely. I 100% agree. Awesome, man. Well, uh, wonderful chatting. And yeah. I'm sure this will be the first of many conversations uh, either through the covid friendly interface of skype or <laughs> once this pandemic has passed and we can travel again maybe uh we'll catch up yeah uh, absolutely on on the island yeah on the island, the sounds island. Good. yes <laughs> sounds perfect well thanks very much for having me all on right. Donna. Yeah. thank I you really take care all right cheers thank you for listening to the show For show notes of this episode, go to languagemastery.com slash show. And if you enjoyed what you've heard, I would highly appreciate a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, 
Stitcher, wherever you listen to the show. Helps more folks find us and helps keep the show going. All right. Well, that's it for this week. We'll see you next Fluency Friday. <laughs>